In her very first vote as a member of Asheville City Council in 2020, Kim Roney was the lone dissenter, this on a resolution to accept a private $20,000 donation to buy tactical gear for the Asheville police. Roney is now three years into her first term on the all-female council, and she has established herself as the council's torchbearer for progressive ideals. Her principles have left her alone, or nearly alone, in dissent on dozens of resolutions before the council. And when she ran for mayor last year against incumbent Esther Mannheimer, everyone else on the council endorsed Mannheimer. I didn't come with the intention of being the opposition. If anything, I would say that I see it as we all have our role to play in the orchestra, and I have fit into that narrow window of the Venn diagram of willing, able, and asked to serve. And my community's trusted me to play this instrument on this stage the best I can. I'm Matt Pikin. Today on The Overlook, Kim Roney talks through a range of issues the council looks to address in current budget talks, including her approach to community safety. Roney surprised many with her vote to put millions of public dollars into the renovation of McCormick Field. We'll talk about that too, and why she wants people to consider the planned renovation of nearby Memorial Stadium inside the broader commitment of reparations to Asheville's black community. Want to see some fantastic theater for free? There are four remaining productions on the Magnetic Theater's 2023 calendar, and we're randomly giving away two pairs of tickets to each of them. Just sign up for the Overlook's weekly newsletter. Anyone subscribed by the end of April is eligible. Go to podavl.com, that's P-O-D-A-V-L.com, and scroll to the bottom of the homepage. Plug in your name and email address on the newsletter sign-up form, and you might become a new fan of the Magnetic Theater thanks to The Overlook. I began my conversation with Kim Roney by asking why she believes she's often the lone no vote when there are any dissenters on resolutions that come before council. I'm very privileged to serve with people who care deeply about our community. We disagree a lot of times on how we're going to make it better, but I didn't come with the intention of being the opposition. If anything, I would say that I see it as we all have our role to play in the orchestra. And I have fit into that narrow window of the Venn diagram of willing, able, and asked to serve. And my community has trusted me to play this instrument on this stage the best I can. It's really been an intention of mine to make sure that I stay in the grocery store, in the dance hall, in the faith communities, on the sidewalk, on the bus, so that I'm accessible to people and they can find me and reach me. It seems just from the outside looking in, you represent a progressive ideal in a lot of your votes and some of your council colleagues don't operate from the same vantage point as you do. I anticipated that you might ask this and I wondered, I thought about 2020 when I was running with my friend Nicole Townsend and right before the primary being in salvage station, and not being on the stage. And the curiosity that you brought to me in conversation was like, why aren't you on the stage? And it's, oh, this, that's, this is the Democratic Party's primary questionnaire. And as an unaffiliated voter, I'm one of now, what, 35% of North Carolina's unaffiliated voters? To use a baseball analogy, a lot of folks would like to see me in the batter's box or on the pitcher's mound, but somebody's got to ump this game. And at the end of the day, I only have two options as a council member, right? I, can, I have to say yes or no. And I try really hard to say, like, I don't know what it's like to be in right relationship with the human family or with the planet. But I know that what we're doing right now isn't working. So how can I bring a third option 
or if community members bring a solution to the table around water rates or development or a human rights issue. How can we put that on blast together? Because no one person can fix these messes that we've made or found ourselves in, but we have a lot of neighbors who care. So how can we plug into our people power? How can I bring another option to the table? And then I have to maintain my record. I have to maintain my record in the press, in the meetings, and with my vote. And that's a really serious obligation and responsibility. So sometimes I have to say no because it gives value to yes. If I have to say no on something huge that's like almost there, but it's not perfect, I'm going to explain exactly why it's still a no. And I do get some, you know, heat for maybe talking too much in the meetings, but I've also been asked by my colleagues and by the staff, it helps us to better understand where you're coming from if you explain your position. When we were having all of our pre-meetings behind the scenes in groups of two or three at a time, we missed the opportunity to see what we were missing. You're anticipating a question I was going to ask you. A tenet of your platform was transparency, and yet you felt, I guess, from the outside looking in, obligated to participate in these closed-door sessions at the risk of being locked out of these? Or what? why oh, did you participate in them? What a pickle, right? So I will say that transparency is like a word that we have to use, and it's unfortunate because it's sort of like a dog whistle kind of word. When really, if you say open meetings policy, is anyone going to give you the time of day to explain what that is? They expect that our government will be transparent and follow the open meetings law. What happens if it's not the case? What happens in 2021 when we were sued by four media organizations and lost and forced the retreat in public? I've been attending the retreats as a member of the public, so I know that work is invaluable. And it's helpful to have our meetings in the sunshine so that we can all learn and come up with a better solution. Why did I participate? I strongly considered not participating. But my community sent me to do this very difficult work. I'm on assignment. I'm, I have a responsibility to be a representative. And I can't do that if I'm not in the room. We were going to talk specifically about this budget session, right? Yes, please. And so what are your priorities? What do you want to see the city prioritize? And what are you getting a sense of what's happening or what's going to happen in this budget? Okay, start with what I want. I think about Adrienne Marie Brown talks about in her writing, what we pay attention to grows. And I've been hoping for years that we would start to send the right person with the right tools and training for when people are in crisis. For example, mental health crisis, behavioral health specialist. That seems to be where the country is moving it's something we always should have done. We never should have placed all the problems of our society on one small group of people with one skill set. And now, because of the shortages in our Asheville Police Department, we have both an obligation and an opportunity to do that. We have to. If it's going to take seven to 10 years to restaff the police department, we cannot wait seven to 10 years to answer the phone. It's already here. Buncombe County's Community Paramedicine Program is serving downtown and West Asheville with the majority of their calls. And they're matching those crises with the right response in a way that when I did the ride along with them and I see them in community meeting people's needs, I'm like, shouldn't we be doing more of this? What would it look like to partner? So right now, it does seem like we're getting ready to start a pilot in May. We should start to see some of Asheville working with our fire department testing out and working alongside the paramedics to 
see if we can amplify and work in parallel. I'm not trying to be against it. I do think how we do things is important. I do wonder if, should we duplicate every single thing the county is doing? Because that sounds like a really bureaucratic process of wasting taxpayer dollars when we could partner underneath their umbrella. We're looking at doing that with transit right now. So right now we have two transit facilities. We're just right down the street from one. We have two transit fleets, two transit managers, two transit contracts. We have two everything, but we don't do the work well. So it's should we actually collaborate together on one project? When you're saying collaborating, are you talking about county and city collaborating? It's something we didn't do well in the past because those borders, those walls were drawn so strongly to create shadows that nefarious behavior was happening in, right? So now that some of those walls are being broken down and there's better relationships and more trust being built, this seems like the perfect opportunity to make our tax dollars go farther in areas where we could collaborate, like transit, like Buncombe County Community Paramedicine. And both of those things are on the budget conversations right now. What I expect that we're going to do, especially after the recent budget work sessions, is really work hard to incentivize people to stand in the gap. What I mean by that is if you're down 40% of your staff, then sometimes our staff is willing to do more. So can we incentivize overtime pay, evening shifts, weekend shifts, call-in shifts? But I really want to go back to a different kind of cultural shift that's also happening at the city and the county right now, and that's around living wages. If we only focus on overtime, and don't focus on making sure our staff can afford to live in the communities that they serve, then we're going to be way behind on living wages. I think we have to lead, not lag, because every single opportunity to meet people's needs means you keep them longer. Plus, they're not getting burnout on tons of overtime. They're not sick and stressed out and not able to take vacation, not able to spend time with their families and start looking for another job. They feel really valued in what they do. And then we can attract new people because our living wages would match the cost of housing. Money has to come from somewhere. Where would that money come to raise salaries across the board? Good question. So do we actually need to narrow the staffing level so we can pay the current staff more? I think folks are so afraid of that. And so I think that's one of the conversations we're going to have to have is reprioritizing our existing budget. Let's look at something that's working. So Asheville Fire Department, when I first came on council, one of the big conversations that was happening was living wages for our firefighters. We were paying 70 of our firefighters less than $12 an hour. That's that's crazy. shame, right? Yeah. So it was like, oh, you because you work these like short periods of days for 24 hours in a row and that you could live outside of town, like our attitude was you can live in another town and work a second job. What's wrong with us? That's a cultural problem, right? When we got them to a living wage, they don't have any vacancies. So we know what works. We're seeing what doesn't work. Why don't we replicate or at least pilot some solutions that have shown to be effective? So again, but where would that money come from? You're saying raise salaries and that it would cut down on the overtime. So the amount of overtime that we're paying in X department, that money would go toward higher salaries across the board. So instead of overtime to 40 people, we're paying a better salary to 60 people. Yes. And that's one tool. We have to use all the tools in our toolbox for this, right? Sales tax going up every year. That might not be the case in the future. So I think there's a hesitancy from staff to rely on it. But if you look at our recent sales tax revenue coming out of the pandemic's early phases, 
we're growing our savings account. That's not appropriate. This is supposed to be a rainy day fund for the general fund balance. And if it, we have a state requirement that it's at 8%, we have an internal policy that it's at 15%. So that's like making sure your savings account could pay two months of your bills, but we're going to just allow it to continue to go up. What we talked about at the last night's council meeting in the budget work session is let's not grow the savings account. Let's meet the needs of today. When you're talking about a rainy day fund, and I get the sense this is a post pandemic mentality of, and it happens in business. And I wonder mm -hmm. if this is happening in municipalities where the mindset is any recession or anything that happens could kill us in overnight. So we're going to put money in the bank just in case, because we, it's almost like a depression era, post-depression era mentality. Sure. And it, are you seeing that's the mentality? It's that mentality versus us being proactive in the here and now. Is that a debate that is still happening? I hope that the conversation is still happening. So use our rainy day fund that don't just grow the savings account, right? Let's invest in our community. We are looking at using our existing budget resources. We have ARPA funds, the COVID-19 relief dollars that were eligible. We have about $2 million that we're able to meet some of the explicit needs of the pandemic. So increasing wages and vacancies could be one of them. I think that's a good argument. At some point, though, we do have to be aware of property taxes could go up if we start earmarking specific goals but don't have something to back that up. Like I think the saying is like writing checks you can't cash. Yeah. So because we know that the property tax process right now in Buncombe County disproportionately impacts historic black neighborhoods and renters, both residential and commercial, that doesn't get talked about a lot. Our local businesses pick up the tab when we raise property taxes too. And not enough of our tourism dollars are coming into our community to meet these needs. So that means local people, local businesses are picking up the tab for increased sanitation needs, public safety needs, infrastructure needs for the tourism economy. I just had Brooke Randall of Mountain Express on. She was yesterday's episode. It was talking about how there is such a, an attrition happening in the volunteer boards and commissions that advise city council. So I'm on the Boards and Commissions Committee, and I'm here to say we've been doing a lot of hard work, and it's going to take time, but I'm really hopeful we're headed in the right direction. Step one, instead of doing monthly appointments to boards and commissions and always chasing our tail and, or spinning on the hamster wheel and putting everyone else on the hamster wheel with us, we are going to do quarterly appointments. This means if we have an opening for the ABC Board or Parks and Rec or Multimodal Transportation Commission, Human Relations Commission... We could actually meet the print deadlines for monthly papers. I'm trying to think of like La Noticia. So if we're not able to get out to the population that's most affected because of our own deadline, move the deadline. And we just did it. It just happened in our, in two months ago. So it's going to take time for us to like increase our outreach. But another thing I'm curious about is when I got seated on boards and commissions, uh, my first vote was a no on the Asheville Emotion Plan. And I was immediately like, this document isn't finished. It's supposed to inform the next 20 years of our transportation movement. And this was my first meeting. I was told, you don't vote no. Please don't vote no. <laughs> why, why were you told that? This is what I heard. The city funds a study and we hire a consultant. And the consultant is a professional group that studies the work. And they bring the, back the recommendation and we make some tweaks and then we rubber stamp it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, uh, no, how about we pay for something when it's finished? So I think that there's part of the training for our advisory boards and the support so that people don't get caught in an impossible place or feel like 
their work isn't valued. So we're working on not only doing outreach, but also doing training to support our advisory boards. And I think those two things together will help people feel like their voices actually matter and encourage folks to be able to go back out in the community and say, hey, join me in bringing your professional and lived experience to the table because I'm doing it and it's working and it's really valued. Matt Pikin here from The Overlook. Just as I interview my guests, I interview my sponsors. Those conversations are what you hear as advertisements on The Overlook. No other media outlet in town gives you that much time for your messages. So your ads don't sound like ads. They sound like advice or points of view that really help listeners. And that's how listeners of The Overlook will come to think of you as helpful members of the community. Become a sponsor of The Overlook. Email me at matt at podavl.com. I began the second half of our conversation by asking Kim Roney why she supported committing about $20 million in public money toward the renovations of McCormick Field, home of the Asheville Tourist baseball team. I think during times of overlapping crisis, the opportunity to sit and enjoy time in a park with your friends and neighbors is a great way for us to celebrate together and the community hopefully that plays together will stay together. I also am curious when I look and see what's happening across the country at cities that are losing their baseball teams. The threat of us losing our baseball team got the most attention and I really tried hard to focus my decision on it's our park. How do we use our park? Is it in good shape? And how can we use it better? How can we get a better deal for Asheville in the renegotiation around McCormick Field? Some cities, when they lose their team, end up having to allow it to get in such terrible disrepair that they knock the whole thing down and they rebuild something new when they get state or other funding for it. That was going to double the cost, but not just the financial cost. When you throw old materials in the landfill, there's a huge carbon impact of that because the older, denser materials are being replaced with new, lighter, faster materials, the cost is more than just the dollar signs. It's like the long-term cost of throwing a stadium in the landfill. Yeah, I hadn't even considered in the whole debate. Uh, Yeah, I just, yeah, that's just something that hadn't occurred to me is the cost of what happens to that material once it's torn out. I just all the time. It's like, I'm learning that it's okay. What happens after this is why I ask in our staff reports, can we, instead of just a fiscal impact, can we have an equity and sustainability impact? Because if we're not measuring the cost of what happens when we do things fast, then we're not measuring the whole cost. So one adaptive reuse, huge. Okay. Let's say that we do an adaptive reuse and we don't have a minor league baseball team. What's the cost of that? We have tons of baseball in our community that doesn't have anywhere to play. There's a queer league, there's a semi-pro league, there's youth baseball, college baseball. There's lots of baseball that we could program in our park. Hmm, could that be an option? So I put together 51 questions. I got most of them answered. Can we amplify local food and other merchandise that's not just beer? Can we make sure that the beer that's in there is small local, not really the kind of the ones that are major label-ish? Can our youth use the building more? Oh my gosh, what if we use McCormick Field, our park, year-round? That's one of the things I was always wondering about this park. It seems very underused. You yes. Know, no concerts ever happen there, at least in my time here. I've not seen a concert. You missed Florida Georgia Line. When was that? <laughs> it was a few years ago. Okay. But the impact on the neighborhood when you have really big, loud shows should be considered too. So it's okay. I saw during the early phases of the pandemic a trivia night. 
Now there's talk about dollar movie nights. So more affordable, family-friendly events mm. year-round. Like, we might actually get a better use of our park and stand to actually get at a break-even point. I don't think we were communicating that part very well to the community that it's our park for the long haul and how we use it is our choice. Tell me about that. And now, you have insight into this, certainly, that I don't have. and I haven't read the fine print of the contract. But even though the city, in a real sense, owns the park, don't the tourists have the right to say what happens and doesn't happen on that field, even when they're not playing? I mean, previously. Previous, so our so previous contract, they had almost no rent and could say who used it right. the rest of the year. So to save costs, I'm sure there was like overhead and employee costs and, and utilities. They just turn off the utilities or not use them during the winter. And then if we or the community wanted to use it, they could charge a rate that we couldn't afford. It was cost prohibitive. Now, after baseball season, the city is going to program. So it could be gospel night, movie night. It could be, I'd see some cities, oh my gosh, ice skating. What <laughs> yeah. is possible when you start putting the ways that we could use a park? Could we have symphonic orchestral shows? That would be I mean, fantastic. No, so I just want to be open clear. Open the door for possibilities. So just to be clear, in this new contract, it is in there that the city has the right to program in that space when it's not baseball season. Exactly. The tourists are paying rent, and that's new. So this is a private-public partnership that it wasn't before. I do sometimes wonder if through this process, the previous contract managers might have seen like, uh oh, we missed an opportunity to make a whole bunch more money because we could be having these winter programs, outdoor programs. But the, I can say with confidence right now that we got a better deal for Asheville with a new contract. And if we had lost our team, we wouldn't be eligible for the new batch of state funding that's being proposed for facilities that have a team. Tell me about this. I didn't know the state was incentivizing having a team, a professional sports team. Right. So they're going to they're going to have a small pool of funds potentially. Like the budget's got to pass, right? And this has to pass in it. But there's potential funding for stadiums. Maryland is doing something similar because remember other cities were like knocking down their stadiums and saying, "Oh, because of the economic impact, we'll get some of the state funding to build a new facility. So what's going to happen in our situation is if you have a stadium that doesn't have MLB-associated team, then you could maybe get a smaller, tiny pool of funds. But if you just look at the proposals that were presented to us in the public meetings, we stand to be eligible for far more state funding because we have an MLB-associated team. So it was like there were so many ways that I could imagine saying no to this. We have a housing crisis, a climate crisis, a public safety crisis, affordability crisis. Why would we spend the public tax dollar in this way? The other option was we allow the park to go into disrepair. And I don't see a lot of trust in our community for us to maintain the facility without a contract. But I don't want to see something go fallow that actually could be at a break-even point and have massive benefit in our community for having more family-friendly, affordable events in a historic black neighborhood, the East End Valley Street, and have significant benefit to our youth. So when yeah. I look at the pros versus the cons, it's very pro if the contract was better, and now it is. Something I want to ask you about, the park above that's used for soccer, the field mm -hmm. above, I know a lot of people who were using it for soccer and ultimate Frisbee, they're grousing about that some a neighborhood group 
managed to get a six-lane track or a running track that's going to be installed there, but at the expense of grandstands and just taking away playable territory. Is that true? It's possible that two things can be true at once and multiple things can be true at once. And I want to really center, for me, what I'm hearing is the highest priority is how we acquired the field in the first place. Urban renewal and redlining was a devastating impact on a historic, thriving Black community. Stevens Lee was stolen from the community. This was the facility that they used for sports. And so the neighborhood is saying, we want to be centered in this conversation. This is what we want to see happen in our neighborhood. And it's so interesting because I can imagine people from all over the city would say, you can't just come into our neighborhood and decide what programming you have but we can do that to Easton Valley Street. It's, uh, okay, second thing that's also true. The soccer games, not like the professional even schedule ones, which are awesome, that were happening at Memorial during the day is the most different languages I've heard, diverse socioeconomic background. I think the fact that it was being used by people of all ages and genders and financial income, I was hearing like, maybe Russian, Ukrainian, Farsi, Spanish, and stuff. I don't know. Being played on the field at the same time, that cultural vibrancy that happens on a soccer field is so special. Sure. We're looking at investing in, we did just do this in the consent agenda, more flat field use through a partnership with Carolina Day School. That's like a whole nother conversation that needs to be had. But I do wonder if trying to move this programming from the heart of the city to South Asheville is the answer. Maybe it is. Maybe it's more accessible and more friendly if it's behind a closed gate in South Asheville versus just walk up at Memorial. But I do think we need to make sure that we fill that need because I do want to see those kinds of conversations about how we communicate and work together. Maybe that programming needs to be moved to McCormick, for example. Just to be clear, so what's talked about or what's going to happen at Memorial Stadium is now a reflection of what neighborhood groups there are wanting. And these are historically neighborhood groups and people who have not been listened to, who was taken away from. Yeah. And we're re-emphasizing that right now. Which is critical because we say reparations, but we have to actually do it. Right. And this is that language, is the talk of reparations mentioned in these talks about Memorial Field, Memorial Stadium. I imagine for some people it could be. For me, I'm at a listening point of understanding what reparations looks like. I do know that reparations isn't doing more harm. And what I was hearing is you're doing more harm. Now, a third thing that's also true. When we invest public tax dollars in a new facility, and there's so few places to run track, like there's the UNCA facility, but it needs some repair too, right? If we have a brand new, very nice, invested in track, it will be programmed by people from all over the region. People are going to want to run there. And so I worry that maybe we didn't finish having that conversation with the neighborhood about what it looks like to support infrastructure for the amount of track programming that's going to happen in a very new, very nice public facility. So there's still a conversation that needs to happen. I think because we've talked about baseball and we've talked about track and we've talked about neighborhoods and we've talked about the Carolina Day Public Partnership, what I would hope that my neighbors listening to this part of the conversation would hear is I want us to do resource mapping Why are we having multiples of things when we should have a few things that work really well for everyone? 
And when we spread ourselves so thin, like I know there's going to be a conversation about Thomas Wolfe coming up. Yeah. So if the symphony is going to have a new home and you could have concerts at not only at McCormick Field, but at the multiple outdoor facilities that we have in our community that are larger, Dinah Wortham, is that the next big investment? Is that the highest priority? Like if we did a really big, honest resource map of all the things that we need and all the things that we have and what our partnerships are and our maintenance plans are, then I think we would get out of the silo of thinking just about one thing at a time and think about the whole ecosystem. So we need resource mapping. And if we are looking at, oh, we spent $2 million to buy the land next to Carolina Day in South Asheville that was outside of the city limits for a new park facility when we have park facilities all over the city that need investment. Because we just go one agenda at a time and are very reactive, it limits us from being proactive. Mm. And that's an area where I think our community can really get behind being like, okay, this is one piece of the puzzle, but I'm not going to be distracted from the fact that you're not telling me about the rest of the pieces and where this one fits. Yeah. And also, I think you're talking about just really creatively connecting the dots. Some of these projects that are being proposed, they're being proposed independent of each other by the people who are proponents of them. They aren't connecting the dots necessarily. There's a lot of tunnel thinking, myopia. These are my needs. This is what needs to happen right now. And the people who are the main advocates for developing X, Y, or Z, are they're not the ones connecting the dots. And I guess it's really incumbent on leaders such as you and others on city council and city staff, county staff, to connect those dots and say, wait a second, before we move forward on X project, we need to see the bigger picture. So when you look at the pickleballers that were coming to city council for months in a row, all very colorfully coordinated in their bright orange, it was interesting because they had to wait till the end for public comment and they were starting to connect the dots on the big issues happening in our community. And I really appreciated when they came to the dais, they were like, there's a lot going on, but I'm still here to talk about pickleball. So I think there, there's more work ahead. I feel grateful that we have neighbors who care that want to give us heat often. I'm trying to keep up with my emails as fast as I can, but it does make me hopeful. And during times of overlapping crises, that even when we strongly disagree, that our community wants us to do better. And I share that. My big thanks to Kim Roney for being my guest today on The Overlook. Today's conversation happened inside the BB Theater in downtown Asheville, which owners Susan and Giles Collard have been so gracious enough to open to me to record my interviews. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. Don't forget, we're giving away two pairs of tickets to the rest of the Magnetic Theater's productions for 2023. To be eligible, just sign up for our weekly newsletter at podavl.com. Also, please vote for The Overlook as Best Podcast, and for me as your favorite radio host, in Mountain Express's Best of WNC survey. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.